by the way, so much for your support and uh, presence. A number of you were there in, in Longmont with us yesterday at the, the memorial service for my wife. It was so good to have you there, and you've been uh, such a wonderfully supportive church, and I'm so grateful for you, and it's a privilege to be here, here with you. Um, I'm going to ask you a, a question that is, is not as easy as it might think, you might think, to answer it. What makes Christianity and Christians different than the people who aren't here today, who are out there doing whatever they're doing right now? Some sleeping, some watching TV, some shopping, whatever they may be doing. What makes Christians different? What makes Christianity different than other world religions or other religious people? Here are 10 questions. Answer honestly. Are Christians better stewards of our financial resources than a faithful Mormon? Yes or no? No. Are Christians morally better than a good agnostic? Yes or no? We're not. Are Christians more committed to our cause than a zealous Muslim? We're not. They, by the hundreds, now in thousands, are willing to blow up their bodies thinking they're going straight to paradise and killing innocent people in the process. I haven't seen any of us doing that, and thankfully we're not, because that's absolute baloney. Ask this one. Are we more eager to evangelize than an enthusiastic Jehovah's Witness? Ooh, that one you got fast. Have we been going out every Saturday morning door to door? Have we been doing that lately? How many of us have been doing that? None, okay. How about this one? Are we more obedient to God's commandments than an Orthodox Jew? No, we're not. They're more obedient than we are. Okay, are we more peace-loving than a passionate Baha'i? If you know Baha'i, it's a very peaceful religion. Are we more pa passionate about being... No, we're not. Okay. How about this one? Are we wiser in the way we live our lives than an ardent Confucianist? No. Oh. Do we experience more inner peace than a meditating Buddhist? Do we strive to follow what's right as much as a karma-seeking Hindu? Probably not. Is our respect for life greater than that of an obsessive Jain? They won't even step on an ant, by the way, because all life is sacred. Are we watching out for the ants, by the way, lately? Did you see, I just, went, I just mentioned a whole bunch of the world's religions, and you answered, if you're an honest soul, no to every one of them. 
Someone named Steve Matson wrote this. If you were to go to the grocery store, a football game, the gym, a school, or your work, there would be no obvious way of identifying through actions who is a Christian and who isn't. Some of the kindest, nicest, most authentic and wonderful people I know don't believe in Jesus. Contrarily, there are some horrible, mean, and downright disgusting Christians. How can Christians explain the fact that some of the best deeds are done by non-believers and, or worse yet, atheists? Christians can be sad and depressed, while non-believers can be happy. And some believers are hardly spiritual, while many Mormons, Muslims, and a people of a wide variety of other faiths are more passionate about their faiths than we are. As Christians, we're often blatantly and subversively taught that we are happier, more spiritual, and generally better than everyone else we're not. So, back to my original question. What is distinctly different about a Christ follower? That same one who just wrote that, Steve Matson, said this. There's only one difference between Christians and non-Christians. Christ. This is the most important difference, and Jesus wants us to recognize it. A man named Max Anders wrote this. Christians are not merely people who have turned over a good leaf and are trying their dead-level best to make a good on their commitment. Rather, Christians are people who have been born again. Our essential nature has changed. We are not what we once were, and our great challenge is to understand and to live like who we have become. Who are Christians? We are called to be people who represent and who resemble Jesus Christ. That's who we are. So really the only thing that makes us any different is Jesus. All these other categories if you're an honest soul, and if you really know many people, you know some people who don't believe in anything that you do who are really good people. You know people who don't believe in anything that you do. In fact, they believe things that are really garbage. And they're very zealous. And what they believe is nonsense. Way more than we are. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, is going to identify what is it about us as Christians that is different. And hopefully as a result of looking at this passage together, we will become more like the one who we follow, namely Jesus. And remember what we're doing in Ephesians. First half of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3. The key verse is verse 3 in chapter 1, which says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So the first three chapters are all about, these are the blessings you have received in Christ. This is who you are. The problem is we don't believe what the Bible says we are. 
And the great challenge is to understand who we are and act in light of who we really are in the eyes of God. But now in the second half of the book that begins in chapter 4, the key verse is this one. As a prisoner for the Lord, Paul writes, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So first of all, he tells us who we are and then how we should live. We're in the how we should live, remember? He said, since you are God's children, since you have Christ in you, since you have something that is entirely different, Christ in you, the hope of glory, you should be united. Because we've got every reason and every resource we need to be united. That's the first thing that should be different about us. And then last week we talked about how as a result of being people who are in Christ, we have every one of us been given spiritual gifts that are absolutely essential for helping one another and building the body of Christ. We need to deploy those gifts. But today, he's going to focus on what is it about us that's different. And this passage of Scripture is very simple. He's going to tell us two things. Number one, stop living like a Gentile. Someone has written, even in their commentary, they wrote this. What this verse tells us to do, stop living like an American. That's what it's saying. Stop living like an American. You are an American, but that is not your primary citizenship. That's secondary. Stop it. Stop living like an American. He says, stop living like a Gentile. And now we're going to see what does it mean to live like a Gentile. And then he's going to say, and start living like a Christian. And he's going to tell us how we do that. So the key to today's message is this. You've got to stop this thing. You've got to start this one. First of all, stop living like an American. Chapter 4, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. First thing he focuses on is the mind. Stop thinking like a Gentile. Well, what's a Gentile? Well, he uses the word Gentile to mean those who don't believe in Jesus. Those who have not been, quote-unquote, born again. Those who are not in Christ ones. Stop thinking like they do. And did you see what the passage said? You must no longer live this way, which means that's the way they're living. And I would say to you without any, without any um, uh, lack of compulsion, we Christians generally live just like non-Christians. That's how we think. Why? Well, because that's what we're surrounded with all the time. Can you imagine the task we have as a church in America today? How many hours per week do we get to try to influence your thinking based on God's Word? Do you know what the number is? This is for active Christians. Less than one hour a week. And how many hours per week are we exposed to the thinking of our world in every place we go? Oh, over a hundred hours a week. And so we get one hour trying to mold our think thinking to think as 
in Christ, one should think, and we get a hundred hours every week that's constantly blaring on us through every media source, everywhere we go, this is how you ought to think like a Gentile, like an American. Ah, be a consumer. You're, follow your heart. Live authentic with your feelings. You're number one. Grab for all the gusto you can get. Those who die with the most toys wins. And on and on and goes in much more subtle ways. Do you, do you see why Paul would write that? And if he was here today, he'd say, oh man, you people have got it so much worse than they had it in the first century because you hardly ever exposed yourself to God's truths. Stop thinking like an American. Then the question is, well, how do Americans think? Or how does a Gentile think? Now remember, he writes this in the Greek language. And there's no group of people that has ever inhabited the earth that I'm aware of who more focus on the mind than the Greeks. When we think of the philosophy, we think of the Greeks. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, Pericles, and on and on we go. The, the Greeks loved the mind. They, they prided themselves on their literature, their art, their philosophy, their science, their, poli their politics. However, the Apostle Paul says, their thinking is futile. What does that mean? Does that mean they can't come up with good solutions? No, it doesn't mean that at all. We come up with incredible solutions. But there's no good thinking that comes out of the natural, even brilliant mind with regard to spiritual realities. Our thinking, the Gentile thinking, American thinking, is basically meaningless, useless, worthless, and empty. Someone wrote it this way. Our norm, the thinking of people in Paul's society and ours is aiming with silly methods at a meaningless goal. It's frustrating. It's intellectually frustrating and useless. Why? Well, because the, the human mind is twisted by idolatrous focus on ourselves. This refers to the natural tendency of human beings to think our way away from God. Intellectual pride, rationalizations, and excuses all keep people from a deep relationship with God or for searching for Him in the first place. Don't be surprised if people don't grasp the gospel because the gospel seems foolish to those who harden their hearts and take pride in their own independent thinking. And when Paul talks about the thinking being Gentile, he doesn't, he's not talking about intellectual brilliance because we live in a society full of people who are intellectually brilliant. But there's something about the thinking that is not helpful spiritually. The first principle for this is those of us who are in Christ are always susceptible to slipping back into a Gentile way of thinking, which is fundamentally futile. Let me give some examples. We have been given by God, being made in the image of God, many God-given thinking mechanisms. 
We have logic, we have conscience, we have wisdom, we have consequential thinking, we have our senses, we have scientific experimentation. There are many good things that our minds can bring us to, to conclusions about through what it means to simply be made in the image of God. However, without divine revelation and without the Holy Spirit's enablement, there's something that is missing. One of my favorite, favorite speeches is a speech given by Charles Colson. He gave it back in 1991 at the Harvard Business School. The story is this. Oh, the, the, by the name of the name of the, the, his lecture is "Why Harvard Can't Teach Ethics." That's his, and he wrote an essay. Why Harvard? Oh, it started with. Let me start. Somebody gave a lot of money, a million dollars or something, to endow a professor of ethics at Harvard. And Charles Colson had the audacity to write an essay published in major newspapers why there are no ethics at Harvard. And much to Harvard's credit, they invited him to come and defend his view. So he came to speak at the Harvard Business School on why there are no ethics at Harvard. And it was very interesting. I love it. It's just brilliant. But this is what he said. He said, ethics, the word ethics comes from the Greek word ethos, which means a secure place of stability. Ethics by nature do not change. They're authoritarian. You do not have ethics here at Harvard. You have mores. Mores are based on culture. They change over time. Mores are democratic. Ethics are not. It says you have mores here at Harvard, but you have no ethics at all. And that's one of the things that's different. Most of our views of right and wrong shift because they're based on cultural understandings. They're based on the majority of the people in our culture. But those are not ethics. Ethics are solid. They do not change. Interestingly, at the end of Charles Colson's speech, there was a question and answer time. And they started to ask him questions, and they're like softball questions, like, you know, one and one is what? Two. And he said, and Colson stopped them and said, uh, this is Harvard Business School. You are some of the brilliant, most brilliant minds in our whole country. Why are you asking me such easy questions? And someone said, Mr. Colson, we have never heard of such a thing as absolute truth. You see the difference? Our, even our sense of ethics, right and wrong in our culture, is based on the shifting sands of our mores. It's not based on the solid ground of ethics that do not change. We live in a society today in, let's, in which we say, follow your fickle heart. They don't say fickle. Or let your subjective conscience be your guide, and we don't use the word subjective. You see, the key here is Gentiles do not think straight about spiritual matters. Remember the, the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the most brilliant books ever written? Solomon writes about life above the sun and under the sun. He uses that word. What does that mean? Above the sun is life from the perspective of heaven, but the book is written, what is life like if you eliminate that and just examine life under the sun? What if there is no God, no heaven, no eternal life? 
And his answer? It's, it's meaningless. And in fact, he says, death in particular mocks all of our attempts to elevate human beings. Life without the divine dimension, without God in the picture, is ultimately futile. So what is Christian thinking like? One, we acknowledge a creator God who is good at the core of his being and to whom we owe our existence. That's where we start. A Christian mind understands that God created us in his image. That's the basis of our dignity, giving us a free will designed to freely choose to love and obey him and possessing an eternal nature. We sadly admit, this is how Christians think, we sadly admit that sin has tainted the core of our being, every one of us, resulting in a predisposition to cover up our iniquity, to run and hide from God, and to blame shift responsibility for our sin. And this messes up almost everything on the planet. And what is a Christian thinking like? We know that we know that we know we need a Savior and a Holy Spirit. There's a difference. What's different between us? It's not that we're more moral. It's not that we're more evangelistic. It's not that we're more peace-loving, though all those are good things. It's that something has changed in our brain. We, because of God's revelation, we see life differently. But also something changes in our heart because this is what he says next. Next, This is verse 18. And by the way, the Bible uses the word heart about a thousand times. Must be a key concept. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Well, does that mean people are, are mean, cruel, who don't know Jesus? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But there's a darkened understanding of spiritual realities, the very ones I just said to you. This is Paul writing in Romans chapter 1. They profess themselves to be wise, but they become fools. And this is 1 Corinthians, Paul writes. Jews demand miraculous signs. They want to see shows of power. And Greeks look for wisdom, something that's really intellectually stimulating. But what do we preach? A Savior who died on a cross, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. And to think that's your Savior? That's foolishness to the Gentiles. But that's at the heart and core of our being. Commonly in our culture, people say, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, or I'm charting my own path to God. Or the Christian gospel is kind of idiotic, and it's impotent. It's true. The Bible says the Christian message is foolishness. Christian meth messengers are foolish too, people like myself. And our methods are kind of foolish as well. We preach Christ crucified, that's it. This is, our, this is our hero, Christ crucified. Well, what's the heart like? The Bible says in, in Jeremiah, the prophet, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, beyond cure, who can understand it. You see, the Gentile heart is hardwired 
That's our heart, our natural heart. It's hardwired for self-seeking and self-righteousness and works righteousness and self-justification and blame shifting and moralism. That's thinking we can do enough right to make ourselves good in the eyes of God. That's what the heart is like. What kind of lifestyle does that produce? This is verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity, that is sensitivity to the spiritual realities of God, we give ourselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So, how do we live our lives? If you take God out of the picture, how do we live our lives? Well, have fun. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. We live our lives, if there is no God, if there is no, no, no eternity, do what you think is in your best interest. Have a happy, peaceful life, however you can make that work. Martin Luther, here's how he defines sin. And I can't use the Italian, homo incurvatus and se, which means a human being curved in upon himself. Martin Luther said this, separated from God, human beings curl around themselves like shavings planed from a board. Pride and self-centeredness cause the hardness of heart, which in turn leads to choosing self instead of God. This results in an inversion that distorts. The lights go out, and life is lived in futility. One of the major sociologists of the last generation is uh, Robert Bella. He wrote a very, very influential book called Habits of the Heart. And he said, the defining value of Americans is radical individualism. Don't you dare tell me what I, can, what I should and should not do. I have the right to my own choices. And he said, this radical individualism has two goals. I want per vivid personal feelings and personal success. The gratification of self, and this is a, a secular sociologist, the gratification of the self has become the overriding goal of Americans. That's our overriding. I must find what works for me. Let's go back to Ephesus, because Paul wrote this to the Ephesian people. Ephesus boasted the great pagan temple of Artemis, or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a leading city of debauchery and sexual immorality. Some rank it as the most lascivious city in all of Asia Minor. At the temple, male and female roles were exchanged, were interchanged, and orgiastic sex, homosexuality, and every other sexual perversion were common. Artemis herself was a sex goddess, represented by an ugly, repulsive black female idol that looked like something between a cross between a cow and a wolf. She was served by thousands of temple prostitutes, eunuchs, singers, dancers, priests, and priestesses. The 5th century BC Greek philosopher Heraclitus, himself a pagan, referred to Ephesus as, quote, the darkness of vileness. The morals were lower than animals, and the inhabitants of Ephesus were only fit to be drowned, so he wrote. So what's different? about a Christian? Well, 
our salvation begins with repentance, which is a change of our mind. There was a, a, a conference in Britain that took place some years ago, and it was a conference on comparative religions. And you had experts from all kinds of religions meeting in England, debating what was unique about the Christian faith. The debate went on apparently for quite a while, and then into the room C.S. Lewis walked. And this is what he said, what's the rumpus about, he asked and heard that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religion. Lewis responded, quote, What's unique about Christianity is easy. It's grace. That's it, grace. God's unmerited favor. You see, what's different about us? We take our thinking, not from human philosophies and all how good that might be, but from God's re revelation. I, I like to summarize Christianity in just five words. We're honest with ourselves and with God. We're humble enough to know that we cannot save ourselves. We trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, resulting in gratitude, a life of gratitude and service. That's unique about us. Well, the passage turns to the subject then of what is a, a Christ-like one like? He's pointing out, he says, stop living like a Gentile. You're living like Gentiles. Stop it. So what does it mean to live like a Christian? Verse 20 and 21. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him according to the truth that is in Jesus. So he starts again with the mind. What is it that's distinctive, unique about Christians? Well, he said, it's very simple. The focus of our minds, the centerpiece of our minds, the cornerstone of our lives, the capstone of our thinking, the organizing principle of everything is Jesus. That's what's different. Christian thinking and a, think, a Christian worldview is centered around the person and the work of Jesus. That's what's different about us. Well, why? Because Jesus said himself said, I am the way, I am the truth. He said, I didn't say I know the truth or I can teach you the truth. He said, I embody, I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the first thing that's different about a Christian is our minds, the centerpiece of our thought process is the person and the work of Jesus. But then in verses 22 and 23, it goes to the heart. <coughs> you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, that's the Gentile, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. The attitude of our minds is, is our heart, our, the seat of our motivations. Christ, those who are Christians, we consciously, and consistently, because we tend to slip back into Gentileism, we constantly and consciously and consistently clothe ourselves in Christ. What does that mean? I think one of the best ways to clothe ourselves in Christ is to dress ourselves in the Beatitudes. They come from Jesus. First Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Where does it start? 
humility. We don't start with rich, with pride of spirit and you can do it attitude and all that. No, we start with the recognition that blessed are the poor in spirit. And then happy are the sad is the next thing he says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. When, when our sin and our brokenness affects us to the point where it deeply affects our lives and our hearts, that's a good place to be, so says Jesus. And then those who are meek, those who are merciful, and those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, and ultimately those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Clothe yourselves in the beatitudes of Jesus. This is what he says is the character, the clothing of a disciple. Here's what Jesus said in verse 24. And put on the new self that is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So those who are in Christ, we, clothe, we, we take off our old clothes, which is the ones we always wear, namely Gentile ways of living. That's how we're hardwired. We take those off and we put on the new clothes of who we are in Christ. And it says, we dress ourselves in Christ's righteousness. Not in our own righteousness, because that doesn't go very far. Perhaps my favorite verse in all the Bible, my second favorite actually, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin, we just celebrated that, Jesus, to be made sin, he embodied sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's a good exchange. We give him our filthy clothes, and what does he do? He dresses us in his righteousness alone. Remember that hymn, The Solid Rock, a great one. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all away around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and say, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, here's my line, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So who are we? We're people because we've been dressed in the righteousness of God, of Christ. We can stand before the throne of God himself without fault and with great joy. Can you imagine standing in the presence? Standing, not groveling. I, I, I'll be like a worm just kind of <laughs> along the ground. No, no, no worms. Standing in the presence of God's holiness that can vaporize anything that's not perfect. Standing in His holy presence, faultless with great joy. You know who wrote that? Jesus' brother named Jude. That's what a Christian is. It's 
shouldn't be a surprise that there's an incredible clash of worldviews in our culture today. Because as Paul says, stop, stop living like an American. Stop thinking like an American. Your, your core is different. There's something different about us. Is it that we're better stewards or we're more peaceable or we're more moral? I hope so, but that's not it. What is it? Jesus. Grace. That's what it is. There's a Native American legend about a, uh, a brave who found an eagle's egg and he placed it into the nest of a prairie chicken. The eaglet hatched with the brood of chicks and grew up with them. All of his life, the eagle, thinking he was a prairie chicken, did what chickens do. He scratched for food, he ran aimlessly around the yard, he found some rest, and he feared the day he would be butchered. One day, after the eagle grew older, he looked up and saw a magnificent bird flying high in the sky. With awesome power and amazing grace and majesty, the airborne bird soared on powerful wind currents, scarcely beating its wings. Oh, what a beautiful bird, said the changeling eagle to his fellow prairie chickens. What is it? That's an eagle, the chief of the birds, the neighbor chicken clucked. But don't give it a second thought. You could never be like him. So. The eagle that grew up with the chickens never gave it another thought. And many years later, the eagle died, thinking that the purpose of his life was to live as a prairie chicken. That's us. The purpose of our lives is not to live as chickens, though we do. The purpose of our lives is to soar like eagles. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, the centerpiece of everything, of who we are and how we think, how we live, our worldview, our lifestyle. Oh, I pray, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would mold us to be people, as amazing as it sounds, who are like Jesus. And then one day to be able to stand in your presence, perfect, with great joy. What an honor and what amazing grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.